there it's a different sort of rebellion. For example, they'll be like rolling cigarettes and drinking water when they're supposed to be fasting. But you know, here that's rebellion. Today at the cafe, we continue to talk with our friend Man from Palestine, the young Arab American, the activist, the photographer who is living in Palestine. Let's listen. The Arab American Cafe podcast aims to surface a unique perspective. The Arab American perspective. Perspective that should be heard. And it is worth learning about. Join Muhannad and Hassan at this cafe, talking about stuff, debating and discussing relevant issues while sipping coffee. So speaking about settlers and, and settlements and all that, and, and based on what I'm hearing, Uh, the example you gave, th- these settlements are, you know, side by side where there are others, non-settlers or, or the original owners of, of the land that are living somehow in close proximity. But what does the infrastructure look like? Like what, what would be the water distribution or the sewage system or broadband uh, access, uh, electricity? Um Are, are there like a, you know, in, in the U.S. you have uh, neighborhoods that, that have certain rules because they belong to this versus another or something like that? The situation of sort of uh, utilities and, and resources, I mean, it, it, it varies. So, for example, I would say East Jerusalem and Hebron, Khalid al-Arabi, are very similar in a lot of ways because... They're basically the only two places in the occupied Palestinian West Bank where there's actually settlers and Palestinians living in the same city, okay? In most other places, like I said, there's sort of these far-off distant West Hollywood hilltops where you're driving and you see them every mile or two miles. You'll see a community of, you know, anywhere from 500 people to 30,000 people. Some of them will literally, you know, I think you can see the settlement of Ma'ale Edumim from that, from the... From basically from NASA in the, in the space, just to explain how big some of them can be. I mean, some of them are settlement blocks, which basically are like huge, massive suburban neighborhoods on top of these hills. But in terms of resources and, and distribution of uh, different things, like you said, water, electricity, internet, I mean, like I said, it's sort of violently light and day, or night and day, when people in, for example, the ghetto of uh, Kufar Aqab, which is a Palestinian community, which is under the jurisdiction of the Jew- municipality. So in theory, it's still under Israeli control. Uh, it's a ghetto. I mean, it's literally uh, 30-story, 20-story buildings on top of each other, built without tarkhis. There's no trash disposal. The schools are in shambles. The, the roads are in shambles. It's as if you're walking and living um, in, a completely di- in, a, in a completely different reality. You drive three miles down the road and you're in like a settlement like Pesagot. They have a winery and they distribute wines to America. They have a tourist center. They have subsidized housing where you're basically told, we'll pay your down payment if you just come live in the settlement. The roads are connected so easily to Jerusalem where it's as if you don't even, it's as if you're not even colonizing or occupying. It's so seamless. You can drive right in and right out. Uh, and the Palestinian community whose land you're probably appropriated on is looking up at you thinking, oh, my God, you know, 
Yeah, but but yeah, in, in every shape and form. For example, water in the occupied West Bank, we get water two times a week. If you run out of water those other days, you don't have water. Electricity. Last year, I remember they were they were just cutting off the electricity once a week just to punish. I don't even. There was a reason, but I just in my head, it's just like there is no reason. It's just punishment. You know, they're sort of testing how they can how they can interact with collective punishment. Broadband internet is basically all through Israeli internet providers. The Palestinian Authority basically just has a few, a handful that are, you know, Palestinian. Okay, so so that's fascinating what you just mentioned, man. About everybody knows that there is clearly this two-tier situation and system. There has been a lot of of studies, and and it is documented, but yet. There isn't enough outcry in the international community and in the international circles. However, it's it's not always to it's bad to generalize. There are some organizations that that do support the rights of the Palestinians, and uh, specifically, there are some United Nations affiliated. There, there's, for example, Amnesty International. There's the Jewish Voices for Peace, the Jewish Current. Um, if not now, and then there are others uh, such as Human Rights Watch and, and some uh, both Arab and, and Jewish organizations that do support the cause of the Palestinian and advocate for for uh, against of what you have just mentioned. How effective is that? And, and what would if, if we want to rank them in terms of effectiveness and fairness or, or influence, well, where, where would that on it? some scales what i'd like us to do if possible is probably go through them and give them like a rating from one to five so let's start with uh Bet-Salem. maybe let me just say that the the human rights community if we can call it that for a long time has been doing work on this and i think uh one thing that we're seeing is that they're sort of moving away from the political restraints that a quote-unquote peace process or a quote-unquote two-state solution had sort of infringed upon doing qualified human rights work. And what I mean by that is there was always an expectation or an assumption that many of the circumstances and the, let's say, the side effects of, you know, five decades of occupation would be accountability and justice would take place in some political process. I think more now than ever, the human rights community is sort of understanding it's like, that's not ever going to happen. So, to a varying degree, I would say the organizations that do the best are the ones who don't find themselves so tied down to the sort of two-state solution myth that has been running around since 95. But yeah, I can answer sort of, um, you know, based on my experience, organizations like Beit Salem, um, they're quite good. An organization like Beit Salem inside uh, 1948, they don't care so much what the Israeli audience thinks about, and they say things quite honestly, which is good compared to some other organizations that work inside Israel. Uh, how about um, Amnesty International? Amnesty and Human Rights Watch, I'll give them, yeah, I would give Amnesty and Human Rights Watch a, a three out of four, just because at the end of the day, they are international organizations, so they have sort of um, a tighter grip on what they can and cannot say. Okay, how about Jewish Voices for Peace? I think within the U.S., uh, Jewish Voice for Peace, and if not now, are probably the best of the ones working, uh, specifically to like a U.S. audience. They say things that other 
they say things that many, many Jewish organizations would never even touch, basically. Any uh, Arab outside of Palestine, any Arab entities that are doing anything that, that is affected? Um, the, I don't know if you've heard about them. They do great work regionally. They're called the Cairo Institute for Human Rights. They're actually one of the biggest sort of regional human rights bodies. They do great work in Syria, Libya, Yemen, very like... Uh, cut and dry human rights work so it doesn't you, it doesn't it's not very political but in a lot of ways they do really diligent regional, regional work so yeshdin is an organization that has been uh, i guess uh, around for a long time and uh, they've they've uh, done some nice work uh, i heard nice stuff about them uh, man what do you say yeah i give them a, a three they do good work uh they document things especially in the west bank uh they document settler crimes and harassment and intimidation in uh in a quite dignified way, which I think makes them quite good. Weren't they one of the early ones to put out a, uh, a report about uh, apartheid in, uh, in Muslim? Yeah. Mm. So they did a report where they highlighted that the crime of apartheid is taking place just in the West Bank, um, just because their mandate, they don't really do work inside of Jerusalem or inside uh, Israel or Gaza. Mm, I looked up what, what it means in, in Hebrew. It looks like it means there is law. Yashdin means there yeah. is law. Mazboot? For law. For law. Um, have, uh, what about uh, Palestinian Center for Human Rights? Palestinian Center for Human Rights, ooh, another organization which I'm going to put with them, Al Mizan, are the best Gaza-based human rights organizations who do magnificent work out of Gaza. In terms of documenting uh, the atrocities that have happened there, they're basically the two most important organizations to do it. So when you say they, these that are based in Gaza or elsewhere, do they also, do they report both ways on what's happening? Some do. So for example, Al-Haq has their headquarters in Ramallah, but they operate as well in Gaza. They're also another great organization. I mean, the Palestinian Human Rights Organization, they'll give them all fives just because they've been doing it in the face of <laughs> human rights atrocities for as long as they've existed. And then uh, I think, you know, uh, those are the main ones. Anyone else, I wouldn't really, other than Adela. Adela is uh, another great organization based out of Haifa that does wonderful work documenting um, uh, especially institutionalized discrimination for Palestinians who live inside of Israel. And they've actually gone to court and the high court and in a lot of ways are um, fighting the, the legal battle against a lot of the laws that are discriminatory. So you briefly said something about uh, Jewish Voices for Peace and if not now, and I and I know these are American-based organizations, mostly uh, leftist, uh, liberal, progressives, etc. How about uh, the Jewish Current and J Street? I haven't heard of the Jewish Current, but J Street, like I said, organizations that are tied to the two-state fantasy are intuitively ineffective because they're operating in, a, in the sort of myth-making ideal that there is two states. And basically the end goal for many of these organizations is ending the occupation as if that's going to be sort of enough for 70x years of um, discrimination and systematic sort of violence. Well, why are you saying why are you saying that? Can you explain a little bit about your idea about the two state? I was born a month before the Oslo Accords were signed, and in every way, shape, or form, I think the reality of Palestinians is worse. Whether you're living in Jerusalem, whether you're living in the West Bank, whether you're living inside of Israel, whether you're living inside of Gaza. So for me, 
I never had the sort of buildup to live in the pre-Oslo days where the PLO was negotiating and then sort of the the buildup to the signing of the accords and the accords and declarations that happened afterwards. But from my perspective of seeing and speaking to people, what happened since then has only gotten worse. What was a decision and an agreement to develop an independent and autonomous Palestinian state has basically developed a more vulnerable Palestinian state that sort of is under a tighter grip of the Israeli military, where settlement expansion has increased threefold, where things that used to be extremely difficult have become nearly impossible, and things that used to be very easy have become equally as impossible. So before Oslo, I could go to Jerusalem. After Oslo, there's been a wall and an apartheid wall and checkpoints and basically a reality that is much more reflective of an occupation versus an, uh, an autonomous, independent Palestinian state. Is this view is shared by others as well? I mean, how common is this view in the Palestinian main street? I think in the Palestinian main street, it is quite common. I think most Palestinians have a quite ripe understanding that the Oslo Accords have in no way, shape or form benefited them as a people, other than sort of bringing in the sort of uh, de facto governments who, who are stationed in Ramallah and Gaza. For example, Palestinian elections were supposed to happen, but the PA, and when I say the PA, I mean Mahmoud Abbas and his party basically declared to postpone it. He's entering his 17th year of his four-year term. So I don't know. I, I, I'm not the type of person to, to talk good about to talk good about the two-state solution just because I I can't see it helping. It's sort of this illusion. You're you're stuck in a peace process which allows things to happen behind your head which shouldn't be behind your head, right? Like three times as much settlers since '95 should be an indication that there is no peace process because they're basically tumoring themselves all across the West Bank so that one day when there is a peace process, they'll say, oh yeah, but it's not possible for us to, to remove the 600,000 Israeli settlers living in the West Bank. Here, we'll give you a little bit of a Naqab Desert, Kabadil. So talking about two states which are obviously unequal to each other, there has been recently a declaration that went out by the Human Rights Watch. It was called the Threshold Crust. My understanding that there has been similar reports that were out last year and, and sometime in January by some of those organizations that we discussed. What is the significance of this declaration at this time and, and what does it mean? Yeah, so the, the Human Rights Watch report um, on face value is a, is a, it's a massive, it's a massive uh, 200 page document that details very thoroughly the the legal and criminal the legal and criminal of that is applying apartheid onto the Palestinians. It's not the first time it's been said. I mean, uh, academia and think tanks um, have been saying it for years. Palestinian human rights organizations have been saying it for decades. Activists have been mentioning it basically for the last 15 years. There's been something called Israeli Apartheid Week that's been across worldwide campuses claiming the, the same similar findings that Human Rights Watch uncovered. Um, why it is massive, though, is because it's one of the biggest human rights organizations in the world. It's a U.S.-based human rights organization with a, a U.S.-based following. And their analysis, I think, is 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 stellar. I mean, they uncover in very a, a quite thorough way 
the regime that dominates and subjugates uh, discrimination onto the Palestinians in the OPT, in the Gaza Strip, in uh, 1948 Palestine, and I think most importantly for refugees. There's six million refugees who are Palestinian who are affected by the crime of apartheid. They're not allowed to return. And I mean, that is a law that is institutionalized inside of the Israeli uh, legal system that ensures that Palestinians who are displaced or dispossessed from 1948 or 1967 will not and won't come back, thus in ensuring that they're living in a, a, a situation where you have fourth generation refugees living in Lebanon or Syria or Jordan, Venezuela, the US, um, you know, my family, for example. I'm a third generation refugee and I'll probably have a kid who will be a fourth generation refugee. <laughs> So it's always important to highlight that the Palestinians aren't just six million that are living inside of the Green Line, but the other half were displaced. So for those of us who are obviously a little bit older, whenever you hear the word apartheid, you immediately think of South Africa, and, and this is where they, 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 the world was, was talking about that. I, I think there are great parallels that can be drawn to this, and, and it is certainly something that is very befitting to, to describe what's happening in, in Palestine, and I think it applies to those that are opposed to the two-state solution, because it will always create that uh, two-tier system or, or two-class system. Uh, do you see any significance in the time for a U.S.-based, very large organization linked to maybe the new administration, the Biden administration, specifically in the White House, and whether that is going to have any indication of what the U.S. administration is going, how, how it draws the policy, let's say, for the U.S. administration towards the peace process and the Arab-Israeli conflict. Well, I know Human Rights Watch, for example, has been working on this report for longer than Biden having, having been in office. I mean, they were working on this report, you know, if I'm not mistaken, I think like three years. I do think that because they are a U.S.-based organization, they have a lens on U.S.-based policymakers, as well as international bodies and mechanisms. I would hope that, I think, you know, not ironically, but the threshold cross indicating that the crime of apartheid and, and persecution is taking place would also convince the, let's say, international community or let's even go a little bit more specific and say those with influential powers in international bodies, as well as those who sort of are behind the tight ropes of policymaking. Um, would understand that it's no longer a situation where you can just have business as usual, where the threshold being crossed means we cannot continue to live in this fantasy of a political process that is going to come in and swoop and save and create an independent Palestinian state. If anything, from the Trump administration's sort of focus deal of the century, we, 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 were, seeing a, we were seeing a very Israeli and a very Zionist plan being developed by basically U.S. policymakers, right? One thing that worries me is actually that the Biden administration doesn't know or doesn't have a plan for Palestine. I mean, I think it's one of the first administration that has come in and said, we don't think, we don't, we are not going to prioritize this, right? Why it worries me is because so much damage was done from the previous administration that there needs to be at least two administrations just to recalibrate, just to get us back to square negative 800. But what the situation now is, I don't know. I, I would hope that individuals, including activists, including 
folks like you, including academics, would be able to convince their their third states, would be able to convince international bodies, would be able to convince businesses that operate and exchange within this sort of Israeli settlement enterprise that enough is enough, that the crime of apartheid is taking place. And we're not just looking at the at the socio-historical lens, meaning, oh, we remember apartheid South Africa. We're talking about the crime of apartheid that is in the apartheid convention and the Rome statute that criminalizes the reality. You know, I have an opinion about this. Okay, uh, so, so to start with, uh, Human Rights Right Watch uh, was specific in calling to, uh, you know, establishing a UN commission of inquiry uh, to have a UN global envoy to have the International Criminal Court to investigate and then ask the, you know, the international community to evaluate this type of engagement, uh, agreement, uh, all these things with the state of Israel. Now, in my opinion, uh, I mean, the, for, for those, for those, for calling, uh, calling for those countries uh, to uh, reevaluate and re-engage, uh, it's probably I'm, I'm very skeptical about this happening because these countries have enabled Israel financially, politically for years and by looking away from 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 what what has been taking place in there for years and years. So, um, uh, you know, these countries, the big players on the international scenes have effectively been complicit in all these actions that Israel have been carrying out uh, for years. That's number one. Number two, you know, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think uh, in, 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 in Israel itself, Israelis know that there is apartheid and they actually talk about it uh, openly and it's not like a big taboo. I mean, uh, you know, when the Beth Salem uh, report came out, I, I don't remember, I heard that there is any, uh, you know, uh, big hoopla about it. And when back in the days, uh, President Jimmy Carter called it apartheid, it didn't really elicit any massive outrage. So that's not a, an internal problem within Israel. And then the third and most important point here, um, Israel, unlike South Africa, Israel has a very active, strong lobby in the United States, the Israeli lobby. And uh, that's stronger than, uh, you know, the, any other lobby. And it has a real influence on the administrations in general, you know, the successive administrations in this country. So um, to me, I mean, it's, it's overdue. Uh, yes, it is nice to have a report like this uh, to be specific. I think one of the reasons they said that they put out this report now is because only now they realize that what's happening in, in, in Palestine and occupied territory is not temporary. Because if it's temporary, it's okay to continue to discriminate because it's temporary and there was a solution and a peace accord coming down the road. But now they're, they've finally realized it's not temporary. I don't really think that they're, go they're going to adopt uh, a, a BDS type of movement, right? I mean, this is how we were able to overcome uh, apartheid in South Africa. Uh, this isn't going to happen. I, I don't think so. Am I wrong? Where Human Rights Watch comes in is in their diligent and credible research. I think it's activists and a grassroots movement who can mobilize that research. Their mandate as a human rights organization is not to advocate for the boycott of the state, right? In the same way that other organizations don't do that. Uh, they use sort of international law as a framework to talk about criminal elements, they talk about violations of international humanitarian law or international human rights law. But why I think it is important 
is just because I know U.S.-based organization thinkers, uh, think tanks, policy workers, and all of this, they look up to Human Rights Watch in a, in a quite credible way. And for them to now, I don't think it's going to be now, the effective change is not now, but it's for the thereafter. You can no longer talk about Israel as just violating sort of international humanitarian law or tiny bits and pieces of the laws of occupation. Now you're talking about a regime that is enacting the crime of apartheid. That means you're using a, a completely new lens to talk about what is happening here in a reality that I think, you know, we're living in a quite interesting time where work against anti-racism and anti-discrimination sort of has been swept, you know, all over the world in a, in a quite global way. So you're now being able to talk about what's happening in Palestine in a quite very similar way to what's happening in communities in the U.S. or what uh, communities uh, elsewhere in, in, in the world where discrimination, uh, domination, institutional sort of systematic uh, versions of oppression are now being uncovered not as a sort of symptom of occupation, but a reason for the continuation of apartheid. I don't think they're going to come in and save the day. I think, like I said, there needs to be, first of all, damage control in the U.S. when it comes to some of the laws and, and policies that were pushed by basically the Trump administration. But I do welcome it. It is overdue. You can ask Palestinian human rights organizations. They say, we've been saying this for 15 years. Why now? Why now is it apartheid? I think one thing that's important to note is that they're not saying it's just started. But you need to understand that apartheid has been taking place since 1948, since the creation of the state laws and the dispossession and all of the, the sort of variables that created the state of Israel resulted in uh, a reality where the crime of apartheid started to take place. In Buddhism, they called Buddha the awakened one. And uh, I won't go into the story, but uh, when he was 18, he moved out of a the palace where he was living. And it was the first time he saw life as it, it was with the suffering and all that. And that was his uh, moment of waking up. And, and this is why he became this. You have been all over and, and you had quite an interesting journey. What would you define a personal story such as your awakened that got you into this? I'm saying this not jokingly, but basically skateboards. <laughs> In a lot of ways, I've sort of been uncovering or de recovering sort of my identities sort of here in Palestine, as well as back in, back in the U.S. And one of the most common denominators is basically a skateboard. So when I had grown up in the U.S., I used to skate every day of my life. And after I graduated and I said I came back to Palestine, I brought my skateboard with me and randomly found Palestinian skaters. And I think in a, in a quite simple way, it was a reminder that this place is very interesting and has things that I cherish and admire. But then at, at, in a very similar light, it also reminded me that, oh, this is also a place that has something to give and also something that I should be giving back to. So I ended up really staying to um, help sort of the skate community here, which resulted in me uh, learning about the human rights community, which resulted in me getting a master's, which resulted in me coming back. But my story started with skateboarding, which I think is an interesting sort of uh, spin on things because it was a very, it's a very American thing that brought me here, kind of, or that got me stuck here. But then at the same time, it was so many developments where 
I really do feel more comfortable here than I do in a place like Michigan, where I spent a majority of my life. I'm the type of person who likes to dig, dig, dig. So I want to appreciate and understand who I am by understanding who maybe my, my forefathers were and my mothers. And it's been a journey of sort of uncovering. And I'm also sort of deeply unsatisfied. I would be deeply unsatisfied to just go back home to Michigan or to the U.S. where I can't see it as business as normal. And I know that I have something to offer here. You should have something to offer. I still don't know uh, about the skateboarding. What happened? Uh, I don't know if you saw, but I made a documentary in 2015 called Kickflips Over Occupation. Yeah, so I spent the, the first six months back in Palestine were basically filming and hanging out with a bunch of kids who were skating. And in a way, it was my, my breathing space was sort of coming back here. So it, that's what got me stuck in a good way. And it's also what's been keeping me moving. Are you still skating? I'm still skating. And I'm also working on a project right now, a photo documentary project called Radical, which is about the Palestinian skate community. And then at the same time, it's also about sort of my my role and relationship with skateboarding, both as sort of like uh, an identity bearer and as well as a, sort of a, a, a place or a space that gives me sort of a breathing room. Are skaters rebellion, rebellious by nature? Women, no. Women, no? Yeah. Palestinian issue. Women, no. It's a different sort of rebellion. For example, they'll be like rolling cigarettes and drinking water when they're supposed to be fasting. But, you know, here that's rebellion. They'll be skating places where... I think for me to, to explain why, why skateboarding is so powerful is because the system of, let's say, apartheid that exists here makes it so impossible to want to do something for yourself that is not actually marginalizing. So for somebody to pick up a piece of wood with four wheels on it and say, you know what, I'm actually just going to entertain myself by throwing myself down a set of stairs or going on a ramp and enjoying and interacting with space is actually a, it's a, it's a radical form of resistance. You're, you're owning your headspace for that hour or two. It's not, it's not the most unique thing, right? Like people have their own versions of this, right? People play basketball. Some people are really obsessed with hiking or riding bikes. But there is a small number of Palestinian skaters who, for them, skateboarding is and will be their happy place, which to have a happy place in the 73rd year of systematic oppression is a radical form of nonviolent resistance. So this was the conversation overheard at the cafe. Please share it and subscribe to the podcast and email us your ideas and thoughts to podcasts at ArabAmericanCafe.com or join the conversation on Twitter at AA Cafe Podcasts. Thank you.